Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm your host and the creator of Fruit Bowl, Dave Quantic. Creating Fruit Bowl is not an easy lift. Each interview is filmed on location in each person's home, which often requires travel, accommodation, and equipment rental. Professional editors fine-tune each interview, removing false starts, repetitions, and extraneous asides, and we reorganize the different stories and sections to create a narrative flow. Then the cut is sent to the interviewee for their approval, and sometimes they have additional cuts. Music is chosen and edited, intros are written and recorded, as well as occasional follow-up interviews, which also require editing. All of this is assembled into a final mix. We do all this work so that your experience listening to Fruit Bowl is meaningful and focused on the diverse interviewees and their intensely personal stories. And because I refuse to ask my editors to work for free, each episode does not come cheap. We're currently in search of a new sponsor to help continue Fruit Bowl's mission to share stories about queer coming of age. Sponsorships are 100% tax-deductible through our fiscal sponsorship with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. If you have a business you'd like to promote, or maybe you want to just help support independent grassroots queer media, write dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com for more information. In this final episode of Season 4, you'll meet Brianna, a professional sex therapist who lives here in Seattle. Brianna was introduced to me by Fruit Bowl editor Danny Tayara when I was on the hunt for performers for our Passion Fruit event this last summer. For the event, Brianna did a reading of her book, The Clitoris Chronicles, and I will let her describe it to you towards the end of her interview. But first, you'll hear Brianna's personal story of growing up in small-town Washington, where there weren't many resources to satisfy her curiosity about sex. The internet and a new friend who moved from the big city were early sources of information. Once college came, she was off to the races, but she soon realized she wasn't enjoying sex so much as performing it for her partners. Over time, she learned to communicate better and advocate for her own pleasure. We have no new Patreon members to introduce for this episode. I'll be taking a month or two off at the beginning of next year to make plans for the next season of Fruit Bowl. But in the meantime, I'll be posting exclusive video content for my patrons from past interviews. So come join us. Patrons help me pay for things like website maintenance, music licenses, and production expenses. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com slash donate to learn more. Ryan Whedon edited and mixed this episode. And thanks to Ryan, Bailey Becker, and Danny Tayara for all their hard work this year as members of Fruit Bowl's editing staff. All right, that's enough for me. Now, here's Brianna. I remember 
us like taking our shirts off and at this point the gay thing was very new for me and I was just like boobs <laughs> and I remember being really overwhelmed by the fact that there was boobs in front of me. This is Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm Brianna, I'm 34, and I graduated high school in 2006. This episode was recorded in November of 2022 in Seattle. I grew up in Mount Vernon, it's about an hour from Seattle and an hour from the Canadian border. I guess it depends on how you define small town. I actually grew up in Conway, which is a small town. It has a fish store, a post office, two gas stations, and a, the Conway pub. So it is definitely a small town and it's close to Mount Vernon, which everyone knows about because of the queer people know about it because the co-op and everyone else knows about it because the Tulip Festival because it's like a national festival. So people go from all over to go there. It's kind of a strange community. It is definitely an agriculturally based community. It's like big farm families. I grew up with a lot of farm families. It is definitely conservative. There's like small liberal pockets like the co-op and apparently it's getting gayer. My mom likes to tell me that a lot because she hopes someday I'll move back there. Definitely not gonna happen, but we do have a drag show now. It's at one of like the local theaters and there's two drag kings and everyone else wears sparkles. So it's, you know, they're trying. So yeah, it's on the conservative side, I think because of the farming and it being more rural. I remember there was one person in high school. I think it was known that he was gay. I don't remember if he was out or told people that or if it was just kind of assumed. But I remember he wore eyeliner and that was, you know, <laughs> a big deal. But no one else that I know of that was out there. We had one of my friends who is living there now who people would talk about as being gay, but like not to his face. And he dealt with a lot more bullying because of that. When I came out to my relatives, one of my cousins emailed me and told me that she identifies bisexual. We've not talked about it since or ever, but we did have an email exchange, so I think I have one bisexual cousin. My parents are one of those like miracle families, I think. They really love each other and have always really loved each other. Very affectionate. Yeah, kind of what you look toward is what love could be like, which is really cool. I think I feel lucky because we kind of distantly were churchgoers, but it wasn't a huge part of our identity as a family. It was more just for fun and community because my family is really social. So I think that saved me from a lot of like negative talk about queer stuff. I think there was definitely maybe jokes that I didn't fully understand that might be directed toward gay men but I think it was more of like kind of this interwoven, really subtle homophobia that I can't pull any of them to mind. But it was more of in my extended, in my dad's side of the family because they had all three brothers. And so I feel like they just had to be really masculine and jokesters. But I don't really remember talking about queer people at all growing up. My parents were really kind. And so I think they weren't people to really judge anyone. And so I think maybe that also protected them from doing that in the same way that I might have heard at church or at school or other places. I remember learning about kissing 
first and seeing people make out in movies. And I remember my first kiss with somebody, I was like, okay, we have to turn our head from side to side because I thought that's what adults did. But I think maybe the first time I actually learned what it was, I maybe learned it from a friend at school and then came home and talked to my mom. And so then she gave me the sex talk, which involved a really, what I found to be disturbing book of two white people in a bathtub together. I wish I could find the book. I actually have not looked for it and I should, but I have a vivid memory of these two ugly white people in a bathtub <laughs> together and being like, like weirded out by that. I'm sure she kind of read the book through with me. So I'm sure she tried to walk me through it and then like, you know, allowed me to ask questions. But I do remember being really uncomfortable and feeling relieved that I got the information, but also kind of grossed out and freaked out by it. And I think my mom like did it with the best intentions. And still I came out of it thinking I was gonna get pregnant from sleeping in the same bed with my brother. <laughs> I think it is hard to talk to kids about sex and have them absorb what you're trying to tell them because it's very weird. It's kind of an alien concept to yeah. a child. Yeah, it's a hard thing to do. And yeah. I think sometimes parents jump to when kids ask what sex is, they're like, okay, I got to tell them everything. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, just slow it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. I feel glad, glad that my parents tried and gave me something, you know. I probably should talk to my mom and see what she remembers about it. I think that would be fun. <laughs> Especially given what you do now. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. My parents are very open and tend to be very flirty with each other and like talk openly about sex with their friends, but more in like a joking way. There was a lot of information passed along about men and what men want to do, that you shouldn't let them do that. There was a lot of purity stuff that I, my parents weren't even super religious, but it still was like woven in of like they're impure girls and, you know, more pure girls who like wait and you should wait till you're in love kind of a thing. Not marriage, but when you're in love. So that really stuck with me and kind of, I think, fucked up my, my like experience of sex early on because I was like, I have to wait till I'm in love. And so that made it really hard for me to follow my own body's intuition around stuff, even though it comes from the best well-intentioned thought. I think my mom bought me a vibrator at one point, which is like, go her, you know? I was super embarrassed and refused to use it, but now I look back and I'm like, way to go. I remember in middle school, they were making this joke with a belly button. So they would do a joke where you would take your belly button fat and you'd push it together. The first one would say, this is a straight butt. And the next one you push it together like this. And then this is a cat butt. And then the last one is this is a gay butt. Just so I get the joke, like was the gay butt just... It was open. It was open. It's just a, it's a stupid stereotype, right? But it's like, that's what I can remember and had no idea why it was that way. And I remember not understanding the joke and being like, ha ha ha, you know, like I'm uncomfortable because I think I'm supposed to know something, but I have no idea. And so that's the first time I can remember when I was younger hearing about queer sex. I never really understood what queer sex really was until college. I mean, there were so many movies coming out in the 90s that were very, like, guys are, like, only want one thing and that they're going to take advantage of you, they're going to hurt you. Yeah, only want you for your body and you have to look a certain way. I feel like American Pie comes to mind as a big one. I started to explore sex online probably around 
age 10. I was an early bloomer with porn. I started watching it on a very slow internet at probably like 10 or 12. My mom thinks it was later. I'm pretty sure it was younger. But it was like very slow download porn. So you would like see the top part of somebody, then the next part, and then you'd be like, oh, boobs, right? <laughs> then the next part, and then the next part, oh, a penis, right? So it was very slow. And I started watching porn and loved it and was super excited about it. And then my parents figured out that someone was watching porn on my computer and they confronted my brother about it. And we're like, and he was, he's a year and a half younger than me, totally super innocent. And then they realized it was me. <laughs> So then they had to come talk to me about how that wasn't a good idea and how it can be really dangerous. Probably wasn't a great exposure to like what sex was like at that age. But I didn't even really connect necessarily that that's what was sex was like. Like I was like, I just know that my body's enjoying this. But I feel like maybe it was because I didn't feel totally sure after my mom gave me that talk what it actually was. And I was still really curious. And so I think I probably just searched sex and then started seeing these sites and then being like, oh, this is really exciting. And so just kept deep diving into it. I remember a lot of like penis and vagina sex. That's what I feel like I was trying to understand at that time and was excited about. And all the movies show you up until sex happens. So you're kind of unsure what it actually is. So I think I was trying to fill that gap. I feel like I was pretty innocent until middle school rolled around. I had a girl at my school who had come from the big city, like she'd been living in the city and then came to our school and she like blew all of us out of the water and started talking about things, you know, that we didn't really talk about. And so I remember learning more from her, like she got me my first like padded bra and that was important that she, I needed to get a padded bra. I didn't want one. She wanted me to get one and like making out oh wow, I just had the memory of her saying I need to make out with my hand. That was one of the things. So I remember that like practicing and also dancing, like doing more, you know, Britney Spears dances and different things like that. I think she had more sexual experience than the rest of us. And she kind of led the charge of like dating boys in middle school. I probably knew fingering existed in middle school. Because I remember that happened to my friend and we were really like overwhelmed by it and feeling worried, you know, she, I think she, it was kind of a sexual assault situation, but she, I think, wasn't ready to do it and it happened and then she was really like upset about it. And then in high school, I think we talked about it more openly, but my best friend and I both had chosen not to have sex through most of high school. And so I think we did other things. And at that time, I thought sex was penis and vagina. That was what sex meant to me. Now I'm like, sex is so many things and is defined super way more broadly. But I think I actually now, based on my definition, probably started having sex at like 15 versus before I would say 18, because that's when I was, you know, playing with fingers and, you know, groping and rubbing up against each other and making out and doing all these different things that I would now say are sex. But then I didn't want to say it was sex because the pure versus the not pure. I think my first experience experimenting with my sexuality was masturbation. We had a pool at my house and I remember finding the jet in the pool and being like, oh, this feels really good. And so then I would just stand there and I think my parents figured out what was happening and we're like, Brianna, go, go.
go away from the jet. Like, this isn't, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> Private time. But I just kept, you know, like a little starfish. I was going to go back to that jet. And then from there, I was like, well, I got to find something that does the same thing. So then I found, you know, shower heads, which I also was like a really big fan of. It was probably around the same time, like nine or 10. It could have been younger, but that's when I can remember. I think that I knew it should be hidden, but I didn't really know what led to a problem like babies. And I was also worried that I could get pregnant in ways that I didn't fully understand. So I was like, what if I could get pregnant because someone else who has a penis also went by this jet or washed themselves with the shower head? And what if now something from their penis got on this and then got into me somehow so I could be pregnant? So I remember going through some panic as a child, afraid that I could be pregnant because of this before I learned more about it, right? Like this is the problem with sex education is because there's so many little things and you don't want to talk about it because it's supposed to be private or hidden. I was always really afraid of taking up too much time in the bathroom or someone finding out that it was happening or the pregnancy. <laughs> just just makes me so sad now because I'm like, oh God, that's such a... That's, not possible. <laughs> I feel like my parents, I should ask them, but I feel like they probably suspected something because sometimes they'd be like, you're in there too long or, you know, in the shower head, you, it had like a vibrator thing or whatever, so it'd make a different noise. So I was always really afraid they were going to hear the noise differently. I think that I would visualize some porn stuff that I'd watched or like create scenarios or stories in my head. And I also would just like focus on the feeling. It really would depend. I have ADHD, so it's easy for me to get distracted. So I have to kind of bring myself back to focusing, which I think in some ways has been helpful that I did that earlier because now I'm like eight was able to masturbate later and be more present with my body and sex because I did that earlier and learned how to focus and kind of pay attention to my body in that way. But yeah, I think it was a combination of fantasy and noticing my body having a reaction. My first celebrity crush, I think, was Jonathan Taylor Thomas, but only with the long hair. I don't know. I feel like they might have happened similar at the same time, but Devin Sawa from Casper, real into Devin Sawa. I look back now and I'm like, they're just really beautiful boys, you know? They were so pretty. And then once Jonathan Taylor Thomas cut his hair, I was like, no, <laughs> not into him. And then Devin Sawa, like, I think when both of them became more masculine, I was like, no. Not so much, <laughs> but I was very much into their like sweetness as a child. I mean, I think they were the heartthrob for a lot of like cisgender women at my age. My first person crush that I can remember was a guy named Josh who was in, I think my kindergarten class. Yeah, kindergarten class. And we would play footsie under the table and he was very nice. And I remember him being very nice and he left and um, went to another school and I got him a candy bar. It's very sweet and innocent. So I think he was a little embarrassed, but I think he might've had a crush on me too. So I think it was ex like excited embarrassed is what I can remember. I was a big flirt as a child, but I do remember for sure. I think I liked him. I've kind of bounced around and I think in the last 10 years I've realized that I'm definitely leaning more toward queer people and queer women. But the first 
big part of my life was having sex with cis straight men. If you expand the idea of sex, it's really hard for me to even know what my first time is because I think probably it was when I was on the couch next to this guy that I liked freshman year and he was like rubbing around my vulva over the top of a blanket. And I remember being like, this feels really nice. But you know, that was kind of sexual, but was it sex? Uh, I don't know. I think what I have qualified as my first time wasn't until I was 18 and I put off sex for a long time because I was like, I have to fall in love, right? That was this big story that I had for myself. And then finally I got into college and was like, fuck it, everyone else is doing this. I wanna do this thing. And so this person that I had had an on and off thing with my senior year, he and I went to a party together and we were at separate schools at that point and ended up getting drunk. And that was how I could access that. And so then we had sex and it was, <laughs> I think, bad for both of us. He cried because he was like, I just don't think it was meant to be like this. And I was like, I'm so sorry, you're right. And also I was like, okay, like I don't, <laughs> I just, it was for me, it was like, that was not a big deal. And maybe it should have been a big deal, you know, and, but I was more worried about him because he was very, very drunk and just like emotional because he was so drunk. And then I had this like weird religious feeling that we had had sex the night before Easter. And so then I was like, oh gosh, this is really embarrassing. I was like, what if I'm pregnant with baby Jesus? And the next day I went to go get plan B and I was like, I could be getting rid of the next Jesus. I wasn't even religious at the time, but I just had this like funny thought to myself and also kind of bizarre thought. And I was like, well, happy Easter. And then my first queer sex that I had was with my first girlfriend that I met in college at my first gay bar, The Stone, the best in Tacoma. I remember us like taking our shirts off and at this point the gay thing was very new for me and I was just like, boobs. <laughs> I remember being really overwhelmed <laughs> by the fact that there was boobs in front of me and not in this way where I was like, oh yes, I'm so excited, but just like, I didn't, I was, I don't know. I just was like, I haven't done this before and felt very, and I don't know what to do and felt very overwhelmed. And then I feel like we used probably hands, touching genitals, stuff. And I don't remember that feeling uncomfortable as much, but it was just, I remember boobs. That's what I remember being like, okay. <laughs> I mean, I've been having sex with cis men for probably, I don't know, like four or five years at that point. So I feel like I was more experienced at performing sex and performing is a good way that I would describe it. I knew how, what I was supposed to do and how I was supposed to be making noises and how I was supposed to seem really sexy. I don't know that I was always very present or in my body for most of those experiences, but yeah. Because they were men? Mm, probably, I think that was part of it. Like I do identify as pansexual and I can find cis men attractive, but I just don't think I ever really felt super safe and I felt like I was supposed to be something, like an object. I was supposed to have things done to me versus being present in my body. I mean, I've had sex with cis men since then, 
actually me and the person who had sex for the first time, me and him got back together like, I don't know, probably 10 years ago at this point and had sex again, like reclaiming that experience with each other, which was really amazing and actually made it, like did a way better job communicating with each other and it felt a lot, um, I don't know, just I think it healed some of that stuff of like early sexual stuff. I think I wasn't able to have a fulfilling encounter until my second girlfriend. My first girlfriend I was figuring a lot of stuff out with and just kind of trying to see how I felt about all this stuff, coming out to people. I was also still in this performing mindset that I was with men where I was like, oh, I'm an object. And then with her, she was like, where are you? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, right, you want me to be here. You actually care that I have feelings and I'm enjoying myself. Like, I don't know how to do that. Like I was faking all of that for years, so I don't totally know what to do. And so it wasn't until my second girlfriend that I was actually more able to be in my body. I just felt way safer with her and just able to communicate with her and work through things and take things as long as I needed to and do a lot more things that felt good to my body. And so I don't, didn't have an orgasm with a partner until I was probably, I don't know, 22? And that was a year after I started having, I think, sex with women. Okay. More toys and using lube and a lot of touch, like exploring someone's whole body and, and also like doing a lot more with the clit. I feel like the clitoris, maybe I had explored it a little bit with some of the people I'd been with, but not really. And I feel like not in a way that I felt like was about me. It was about more about their prowess and what they were accomplishing, not about what actually felt good to me and how long things took and I don't know, just all of that stuff. I also think just with new partners and things, you just learn a lot about everyone's bodies and nobody's bodies are the same. And so you try different things and different things feel good with different people. And you can get out of this really linear idea of what sex is, which also is not pleasurable for most cis women or people with vulvas because it's about male pleasure, you know? And not even really about male pleasure, actually, because I don't think a lot of cis men are really that in touch with their own pleasure. I think it's about accomplishing things. It's about competition. It's about prowess, all that stuff, which is just sad. Like, I just hope all of us can be more present in our bodies and enjoying what's there. I think that lesbians can also get stuck in this, like, heteronormative idea about, like, penetration, too, where, like, I've had partners that are, like, going hard and crazy with penetration. I'm like, why are we doing this? Like, that can be fun sometimes, but like, why are you just right off the bat jumping to this? And I think it comes from that same idea of like, I have to like be in this penetrative role, even though that's not even really what felt good to them or anything. Like, they're just kind of falling into this script. I love that we can go off script. I love that we can try other things. And that's actually what makes sex feel good and safe and helps you trust yourself and other people. I think it's been fun like exploring power dynamics with sex and seeing you know what feels good to me like at, at one point in my life I'm like maybe I'm more of like a dom when I was with cis guys I just hated being in like submissive roles because it didn't feel authentic to me and I think now that I'm with like queer women and trans and non-binary folks it's more like I can take on that role and feel safe taking that on like I don't even know if I call it submissive I definitely feel like I'm like a switch person but I think 
just playing with power dynamics is really fun. And different partners bring out different parts of myself. So I think that's been fun. Also kind of being able to recognize where that stops. Like I remember I was like really into this, I'm going to be a dom for a second. And then I was like, this doesn't feel authentic either. It feels like I'm putting on this performance that doesn't also feel good to me. So I think it's been fun to try those things on and see what feels authentic. And also realize that there's not a right way to do any of this stuff. It's really bothers me when people say that people are good at sex. Because I don't think anybody is good at sex. Like I think we all are just, you know, figuring it out. And we should be figuring it out. If you think you're good at sex, how is that going to affect how you communicate with somebody? And I feel like it comes back to like ego stuff that really gets in the way of people being more present. Men often think that they're really good at it. Yes, I could see that being a barrier for them. I was obsessed with love when I was in high school and I think back on this. One of my friends actually wrote a song about me and my obsession with falling in love because I couldn't fall in love with my boyfriend at that time or guys in general. So I was always trying to figure out, like people would talk about, you know, you just fall into it, you know, it just happens to you. And I'm like, I don't understand. What does that mean? Because it just wasn't happening to me. And so I think the first time I fell in love, I still wasn't really sure what that meant or felt like. And so I fell in love with my second girlfriend, the one that I had my first orgasm with. But I couldn't really hold on to the feeling, I think, because I just still was trying to figure out what it even felt like. So I think the first time I deeply fell in love and really kind of understood it was with a girlfriend named Megan. I was 25. I was living in Green Lake at the time in Seattle. And I met her up in Capitol Hill at a bar. And that doesn't exist anymore. I remember us kind of meeting. And I thought she had looked at me in a certain way. But I think she wasn't actually looking at me. And so then I approached her. I still had like explored and had hooked up with some cis men after my first girlfriend. Because I was like, I don't know. Maybe I'm not really gay. I don't know how I feel. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to feel. And so I feel like I worked through a lot of that with my first couple people I dated. And then she kind of came at this perfect time where I was like, this is feeling right. So probably like three or four years into it. I feel like that time I just knew in this way that felt very intuitive or just solid in my body. And yeah, it just felt really peaceful, I guess, just to know that because I'd been trying to figure it out for so long. I don't remember what the exact moment was that I would have defined it as love. I just remember this big swelling in my chest. Like it felt like this very just huge feeling that's like a balloon filling up. And it felt so expansive is the best way I can describe it. And just feeling like I feel really sure of this thing that I just kind of know it. And I've always been trying to figure out what it is. And now it's just so easy and I just know it. And That's weird. I just remember really being surprised that I felt it. Because the person I'd fallen in love with before that, I just wasn't sure. Like, she's still my best friend, actually. We bought a house together, and I love her, too, so much. But I feel like maybe the love I felt for her was, like, I just love her, and she's always going to be in my life, and I want her to be in my life. And I think it was more of a romantic love that I felt for Megan. It felt different. I just still have a really fond place in my heart, you know? Like, I think it, like... 
she's a great person and um, it didn't ultimately work out and she's actually married to somebody, another Megan. Megan's a very gay name. I've dated several Megans. She was like a really sweet first love, like very kind and sweet and supportive of me at that point in my life. And she was older than I was. I think she was about nine years older than me. And I don't know that I would do that at this point in my life, you know, to go date someone who's so much younger. But I think she was like really patient and sweet with me through the, a lot of my learning process. And I don't think I was ready for that kind of love at that point in my life because I was like, I want to go date as many people as possible. And I'm wanting to learn so much at this point. And I was in counseling school trying to figure out what it meant to be a counselor. And so, yeah, but she was great. Love is so weird. I, it's hard to describe it. And I think I've felt love in a lot of different capacities, which is a real gift, but hard to sort through sometimes. of a femme person. I had to reproach other women because they wouldn't ever approach me. I never was felt seen when I first came out, not even by my own community. I still don't usually, but I, like at this point I don't care. Like I'm like, probably licked more pussy than you have anyway, but it doesn't matter because that's not what makes you gay. Like I had people that when I came out that was like, you're too pretty to be a lesbian. Or like bisexuality doesn't really exist. A lot of both straight people and queer people. My early lesbian girlfriends were pretty threatened that I'd been with men, so that was hard. So I like didn't want to talk about my earlier experiences. So I feel like I had to really become queer enough. So you know, I think there's this whole identity development with queer people where there's that discovery and then that kind of like really being excited and like rah, rah, rainbow flags everywhere. And that definitely happened to me, but it also happened because I was like, I have to prove it. You know, I'm like coming out so late and so many people I'd been with are like gold star lesbians. You know, they'd never been with guys. And so, you know, was I really into women? And how do you prove that? <laughs> it's a stupid question. It sucks that our community does that. I get why we do it, right? We're, we're really protective of ourselves because we've had bad experiences. But I think that also makes it so hard for people to come out. It makes it so hard for people to really understand who they are. And it's okay wherever they land. My parents as well-meaning and sweet as actually they have been through my coming out process. We had, you know, some hard questions that she would ask me when I came out to them as bisexual, of like, oh, do you think this is just because you went to college? Do you think it was just your college? You know, do you think you'd still feel this way if you went to a different college? So, and I think that was just her process of trying to understand because, you know, I was homecoming princess. I was like very part of straight culture in a lot of ways. I had a lot of boyfriends. I dated a lot of guys. And I think that I'm confusing to Mount Vernon still. You know, like I go to weddings and people like whisper about me and it's like, that's too bad. Or like, oh, I had someone come up to me at the last wedding I went to and was like, oh, my son is, you know, he's single now. And, you know, I was just talking to him about you and I was like, oh, you could turn her. Like somebody came up and said this straight to my face right in front of my girlfriend at the time. <laughs> and I was like, I think that ship has sailed, but thanks a lot. I appreciate the sentiment. I think behind it is that you think I'm an eligible person. That's a nice sentiment. I'll see you later. My parents are also very 
much part of the social community in Mount Vernon, and so I have to walk delicately around the ways that everybody feels about it. And my mom honestly has done more work than I have for a lot of this stuff. Like she worked at the dental office across from our high school, so she knows everyone. She knows things before I knew them. So she has come out to everyone in the valley about me, which at first was kind of overwhelming. But now I'm like, oh, what a gift. You know, I didn't have to deal with all these people. And she, everyone loves my mom because she's the sweetest person. So it's a lot harder to be mean to her, right? And she's had to deal with a lot more of that discrimination than I've had to, which I really feel grateful for. They're still entrenched in that community. And I think my parents have lost a lot of friends over the last couple of years through all of the stuff happening, you know, with politics and the ways that people are talking about our community. And my mom is super fierce. And so if somebody is going to say something, she's going to say something back in the sweetest and firmest way that she possibly can. And I respect the hell out of her for that. A sexual encounter I remember fondly was with my spouse slash partner when we first started dating or we first met each other the first night we met each other actually at the Wild Rose. Like when I, when I went into the bar that night, I saw her across the room and, and thought, oh man, she's really cute. I'm going to go this way. I don't know. I just wanted to have more space in between my last relationship. I think we'd broken up like four months before that and I was trying to do... I don't know, like a year without dating somebody. And I was really trying not to meet somebody. <laughs> and then tried to go dance for a little bit. And then I was like, I have to go to the bathroom. And she's sitting right by the bathroom. And I waited in line for the bathroom. And, and in my head, I was like, don't talk to her. Don't do it. And I went in the bathroom. Don't do it. You're not doing this right now. And I opened the door. And I was like, walked out. And I was like, hey. <laughs> Literally zero willpower. <laughs> so, yeah. But I feel okay about it now. She would go to karaoke a lot, and she would go to the rows in between her karaoke sets because it takes so long at Rockbox to get through all the karaoke ones. So she'd go to the rows, have a drink, and then go back. So she had 15 minutes in between, and in that window, we met each other. And then she left to go do karaoke, and I left to take my friends home. And then she texted me, and I came back, and we ended up dancing for a really long time at the rows. We walked to my car, and I drove her home, which she lived on the hill at the time, so it wasn't very far. And we ended up making out and kind of having sex in my car for like two hours. It was just this like crazy experience. And I just remember so wanting to go in, but I had made a promise to myself that I was not gonna date anybody else at the time. So I was like, I can't go in because that means I'm definitely having sex. And then, and then we ended up having sex in my car anyway. <laughs> so it's just really stupid, but great. And we joke around and think about that a lot actually, because it was just like, it just felt, I don't know, when you just can't keep your hands off somebody. And like we kept, I kept being like, we, okay, you should probably go inside. And it just kept getting later and later. And she's like, yeah, I probably should. I think we're out in front of an old folks home. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> so hopefully they were asleep at that point. I have no idea because I just felt like I was in just a blur of feelings. So yeah, but it was great. <laughs> Do you mind if I ask what you could accomplish in a car? Like, I mean, quite a lot, it sounds like. lesbians are really good with their hands, so we don't need to, you know, do a ton of movement to make that happen. So, I mean, you don't need toys. We can just do things wherever we want, which is great. <laughs> I think I more touched her, but I wouldn't let her touch me because I was like, 
I'm not having sex right now, which is so stupid. Just obviously we had sex, but I was just in this mindset that I'm not gonna date anybody at this time. And then I tried not to date her and then two weeks later we ended up dating and now we're super in love and married, which is crazy. Two hour makeouts, like look what they can turn into. <laughs> That's part of why I've had sex with cis men between my dating because I just don't have the same ability to connect or fall in love, but it would still work for me. Like it was still fun in some ways. I mean, kind of, there was some missing pieces to it, but I think that it's so, just so much easier for me to fall in love with queer people and to get into relationship with them. There's just a lot more trust and like mutual respect and safety, I think, and challenge and I don't know, just more, mm -hmm. everything. So I think when I would engage in like sexual relationships, I tend to be a very emotional or just like connected person. I've never been good at one night flings with people. I think I've done it like once and even that was hard for me, you know. I definitely a connected person. So I at least will try it for a couple months. And so I was just trying not to do that for a little bit. And also me and a really good friend had made a no sex pact for a little bit because we talked about this. And so I was like, I can't betray Daylon. I have to not have sex. And I'm a very loyal friend, so I was trying really hard and I obviously failed and they forgave me, which is, you know, they're great. So worked out. I also am just a very connected person. Like I like to know about people. I like to, I don't know, really get to know them. I would have sex with my, I mean, I've had sex with a lot of my friends and we've navigated that, right? But it does, it has caused complications with us more, you know? Feelings get caught or feelings get hurt. And so I have also learned over time after doing that many times that it doesn't work as well for me. I think that there can be some really fun things that happen in that. And I think I just got to a point where I was so messy that I was like, I gotta stop doing this thing because it's affecting my friend group a lot. It's like I've had a couple friends who I've just had sex with and it, that's been good enough and that's worked. But other ones, you just don't know if it's gonna get messy. Uh, I think probably the most embarrassing one, and I think this is probably related to just teenagehood is hard and you more tend to get embarrassed and shamed easily. My mom walked in on me and a boyfriend, like, you know, groping each other in my room, which we weren't supposed to be in my room, we were supposed to be downstairs. And so that was super embarrassing. I was so embarrassed by that. And also because I'd like broken a rule and all this stuff. And then I think the other one that came up for me was actually, this one feels more like a shame one, but when I was in college, remember I kind of talked about how I was doing a lot of performing sex versus actually being in my body. I remember there was one guy who tried to be, actually ask me what I liked. And I would just let guys do things to me. And like I tended to like go toward like penetrative sex because then there was no conversation, right? There was nothing about, I just could just do what I was doing. and they didn't ever have to care what I was experiencing. And he actually cared and he was a nice guy and he wanted to know and I could tell that and it was really overwhelming because I didn't have an answer for him. And I got really upset and I think I cried but I, and I couldn't talk, I just totally lost my voice and uh, like curled up in a ball and we didn't know each other very well, it was like a hookup situation. 
and was so embarrassed by that because, you know, I just didn't know what I liked and no one had ever asked me really or really cared, I think. I mean, I think just having a lot of disconnection from my body. I had an eating disorder early on when I was in high school. I mean, I was supposed to be this perfect homecoming princess straight lady. And so I think just going through all of that and not really feeling connected to my body and also not really feeling that connected to other people's bodies. I think especially in hookup culture, there can be this feeling of like gaminess or mistrust. And I think it's hard to be authentic and have a really meaningful sexual experience. And I had a lot of really toxic ones with alcohol involved and also thought there was something wrong with me because I was like, I can't have an orgasm. What's wrong with me? You know, this should be happening, right? And so I think going through that whole experience really taught me how to kind of look at my own shame and get to know my own body better. And I'm so glad that I started dating queer people because if I hadn't, I think I would have just kept doing that, you know? Maybe eventually I would have learned, but I, I even hooked up with a guy during like a break period between dating queer people. And I remember going back into that same mentality in my head because it was like a hookup thing again. And I was like, oh, well, can't tell them what I like, him what I like, or, and I'm just letting things happen to me and I can't advocate for myself and I don't feel safe and this doesn't feel good, but I'm just letting it happen because like that's what I would do. And I was like, damn, this stuff is deep. It's hard to undo it. Those little trauma parts live inside of us. I think as a sex therapist now is like, I, I work with people who are trying to figure this stuff out and don't know how they feel. And also have all these ideas from the world about what sex is supposed to be and how they should be feeling and how often they should be having sex and what it should look like. And just undoing those slowly, unwrapping them and trying to figure out how to replace them with like, affirming, positive, expansive, um, and connected ideas of uh, bodies and sexuality and, and sex. Because I didn't have that, you know, it took me a while to find it. I remember one of the questions you asked in there that I really liked was, I think, how did you learn about sex? And I think I just put doing it, you know, because that is really how we learn. Most of it is just through doing it and experiencing it and talking about it. and really finding ways to be open with ourselves about it and figuring out what we like and don't like. I've been with so many people with different trauma and bodies and new hormones and I, just all kinds of stuff. And I think what I've realized over time is that the best move is just to ask and to listen and to be present with what comes up and to finagle it and to, you know, know that you're not going to do it perfect and be welcoming feedback and not be defensive and just be open. I, I think that that's what's worked best for me. I think people kind of get stuck on this idea of having to move, but that ends up getting really stale with people and not ending up and it doesn't, it's not going to, land for everybody. I feel like I had a move at one point. I think it was like kissing people's ears or something. And then, you know, my next person I was with was like, I don't like that. And I was like, oh, damn, <laughs> you know, what do I do now? So I don't know. I think I've learned over the years, it just doesn't work to have one move. And it's so fun when you can figure out these, learn these different things with different people and that different 
ways of engaging are going to feel so different and good with different people. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's things that I think you learn you like, but you can learn so much if you're open to it. Is there something you do that's sort of like a move that is exploratory that maybe you is going to give you more information that maybe asking a question doesn't like, I feel like sometimes you learn a lot just by touch and yeah, that's true. Gathering reactions and stuff like that. That's very true. Yeah. I think, Hmm. I think I just do a lot of exploring with my hands and seeing what feels good and like trying to listen for people's reactions, you know, or, you know, whether it's breathing changes or sounds or things like that. And also really paying attention to them, especially because I've had partners who have trauma stuff. Like, I'm like, oh, are they still here? You know, like, are they still breathing? Are they, like, are they still with me? So I think being really mindful of that. One of the things I think I always probably do, I do a lot of tracing of people's bodies with my fingertips, like light touch stuff. I think, I don't know what that is, but I think I just like being close to people's skin. And that feels really nice to me. And probably, I think, is a very intimate gesture. So is kind of confusing for some people because they're like, we're just hooking up or we're just doing this. And I'm like, well, I'm just connecting with you and that's where I'm at. But if it doesn't feel good, we don't have to do it. I think I'm really turned on by other people getting turned on or like having some kind of reaction. So I want to know what they like. And that feels really exciting and good to me and cute and endearing. And I don't know. I love that. I think something about love is you almost have to give yourself permission to feel it. Like you have to be able to be vulnerable. I don't know if this is true for you, but I have other gay male friends who find that really difficult because they've had so much, that so many people are not in that space or willing to be in that space. And so it's hard to actually trust that like, give yourself permission to feel that way. But, and I think it's more about me than it's about them. Like I'm in love with you and it's okay if you don't feel that back. It's not about like, has power here it's about just like how I feel and giving myself permission to feel that way regardless of how the other person feels or whether they're going to feel the same way also I think for me it's like how do you experience love from everyone else in your life so you feel really solid in yourself so that when you are giving that to somebody you're not like I need you to have give this back to me like I'm good with myself whatever comes back to me I'm good with it I've always been a big believer that our friends kind of hold us through all of these relationships and they've definitely held me. And if we don't have that community that can hold us, then it's a lot harder to be that vulnerable. Something that was challenging for me around sex or sexuality was just learning to trust my body and also seeing its information as valuable. I think for so long I treated my body as like a tool for my own use versus like its own entity that has really good wisdom to give back to me. I think for so long I really prioritized other people's pleasure. And I do like that. It feels good to me that other people feel pleasure and that can be a turn on for me. But I think realizing that my pleasure is just as important and that that's a turn on for other people it's crucial that I pay attention to my own body and my own pleasure. I think helping people realize they're important is a big reason why. Because I think for so long, you know, I just didn't realize that my experience was important. Now I really love finding different ways to experience pleasure, whether it's like traditional sex or just intimacy with people or food, right? Like I had 
hard time with food for a long time and now I'm like, I love food, you know? And I don't want to deprive myself of that so that my body can be a tool for other people's like visual use. Like I want to experience food because it feels good to me. I want to experience sex because it feels good to me. I am in a monogamous relationship now, so I'm not hooking up with anybody right now. But I would say since coming out, like in the last couple of years when I have hooked up with people, I don't know, I just value myself. I am not worried about what they think of me in the same way that I used to worry. Obviously, like I worry about how they're doing and if it's going well, and I think it's impossible to not experience some kind of insecurity when you're kind of getting to know somebody, but I feel a lot better with myself and I don't feel like as worried about having to fit into certain things. I don't need to be gay enough. Like I'm very secure in my gayness and secure in who I am. And so it just makes those experiences more fun because we can talk about it and do new things. Something I find so fascinating about queerness is because when we grow up in a heteronormative world, we get this idea of what we're supposed to like. And when you break open that box, like there's so many beautiful people in the world and so many cool experiences to have. And I just feel so sad for all the people who are robbed of that, who just like don't maybe even ever crack that box open because they're scared or because they like feel like this is how they have to be. But just like my attraction to people has like grown so much, you know, I probably very much leaned away from cis men at this point, but like it isn't just about this really small beauty standard. And I love that. Sex has changed, you know, since I've been in a longer-term relationship um, and monogamous relationship. Well, this is my first relationship that's made it as long as it has. We've been together for three years now. I think that it's a lot, it's a lot less frequent than we had sex in the beginning, but I think it's more intentional. We know more about each other and like what we like and. I think also it's different when you live with people. That's been like this newest thing that I've been realizing is when you live with each other, there's less, you know, you are part of each other's routine. So you have to be more intentional in breaking that routine or going on dates or doing things that don't, you know, create this familiarity thing. Because sex has to have some kind of spark that makes it fun. And sometimes sex, when you are with somebody for a longer time, has to be something you intentionally go toward, right? Because you're with each other so much. So I think it becomes something there's like more planning or more just not even planning, but just like putting the idea out there of like having sex or talking about sex or kind of coming up with fun things to do around sex versus that kind of spontaneousness that happens in new relationships. And I think that's been true for a lot of my relationships that have lasted, you know, a couple years or whatever is that you have to be more intentional around them. And I have ADHD, so I'm somebody who in the past have gotten bored or like that's been something that hasn't worked for me. And I think now I know myself more to know that I can be creative and come up with new ideas. And I also feel really secure with my partner. Like she's really good at making time for it and being sexy with each other and talking about it. And it's just like a different experience than I've ever had before. 
I think that we used to be more likely to just have sex happen spontaneously. And now it's one of those things where we actually talk about what our rhythms are. So we're like, she's like, I don't like to have sex at like, you know, when it's too late and I'm tired. And I'm like, well, I'm more prone to do that because it like fits into our day. But so talking about even what works for us, both of us and being like, oh, like let's make time at a certain time where it actually feels good to both of us. Like where we're both excited about it versus like a time that doesn't work. Now that's not really super sexy or exciting, but it's just, it's about communicating about that stuff. And I think newer areas that I want us to try and kind of go toward is doing things and talking through. We actually did this really fun sex worksheet. It's, I'm like have all this stuff as a sex therapist, so it's fun. But we did this fun sex worksheet where you talk about like what you like and don't like and like kinks that you have and fantasies and all of that stuff. And so that was a really good way for us to start thinking about, you know, what we'd want to try or start integrating but also having to push back against being creatures of habit. We both have Virgo in our chart, so that can be <laughs> hard for the breaking of routine sometimes. So I think like making time for that stuff and being like, okay, we're gonna go to Bayland and you know get this new strap on or things like that. If I were to go back in time and talk to my younger self, I would tell her well, I said, first off, I said, I don't know if she'd listen to me because teenagers tend to have minds of their own and have to like, kind of figure it out. But I think that I would tell her that her body is not an object and that it like is for her. I would tell her masturbation is important, but not to be afraid of it anymore, not be, to be ashamed to do more of it and to use your hands instead of other objects. Like other objects can be fun and important too, but I think your hands are a more useful tool that you can use anytime. And so it's just good to know what feels good there. And you can use that more in context of other partners too. Sexiness is not about how you look. It's not just about how you look. It's about a lot of things. And that her looks are not the only thing. It's about how she feels. I would encourage her to slow down and get to know what she feels instead of just rushing through things. And I think I would also tell her that it doesn't have to be about love. I think I was really obsessed with that as a kid and that sex can be about connecting with somebody and that it can help if you like someone, right? That can make it feel more intimate or safe, especially if you trust them. But you don't have to be in love with people to have a good time. You don't even have to be dating them. You can just have a good time because you find each other attractive and have talked about things you like and are gonna explore that together. So I think I'd want her to know that stuff. business life. I'm a sex therapist. I'm a sex educator slash sex ed author. And I decided to become a sex therapist because I think that sex and sexuality are, are really important pieces of ourselves in our life. Sex teaches us a lot about who we are and it can be a really important piece of all of our stories of relationship. And relationship is what makes people function. And so through all of my work in therapy, I've just realized that sex is this topic that just holds so much, I don't know, energy for people. Like whether it's good energy, bad energy, scary, shame, excitement. And I love just like, you know, exploring that with people and really helping people understand that they can make it their own. What was an aha moment? Like what point did you were like, oh, 
this is really what I want to do. Was there something that happened to you personally? I know that your mom, like, Mm -hmm. it it sounds as though that conversation about love and sex with your mom really made a deep impression on you. And and maybe was maybe that part of, I I don't want to call it misinformation because that's what your mom felt was the truth, you know, and it wasn't like she was lying to you. No, no. Well, I think the misinformation didn't just, like, it wasn't really about my parents. It was about everything else. It was about media, honestly. Like, I think, I mean, there was a lot of, I don't know, ideas around being an object, I think, thrown around the media. And even just in the ways that my parents and other people talked about men and how they would seek you out and how they only wanted sex and you had to be careful. There's all this, this kind of things in the media about how cis women have to be careful with their bodies because they're going to be attacked. And that's not an untrue statistic, right? But cis women are not the only people attacked and being put in situations where their bodies are not safe with other people. And I think it's also just a fear tactic that like continues this kind of feeling like we can't take care of ourselves. And so I think really how we protect ourselves is gaining agency around what feels good to us, how we communicate about ourselves, how we like build a community that can hold us and hold our truths. And I think that's a big part of why I went into this work is because I just feel like we're, I don't know, we've done a really bad job at helping people build real authentic relationships with themselves and other people. My parents have a great relationship in so many ways. And like they tried so hard to do the right thing. And still all these other influences come in to just like push at you and makes it hard to find yourself. What would you say is the most common thing you have to tell a client? Like, what's a kind of a standard introductory sort of concept that you often have to introduce to people who who go to you for sex therapy? I think probably the two most common ones I can think of is communication and consent. Mm -hmm. Like, I think people are afraid to share real things about sex and how they're feeling, especially with, like, other people in their lives and partners because they're afraid of repercussions that that will have like punishment Mm -hmm. and they're afraid that they're weird or too much or there's something wrong with them and so I think being able to communicate and just like take off that shame the main model that they use in sex therapy is called PLICIT and the first is an acronym and the first letter in it is P and that's permission so it's giving people permission to like speak their truth to start exploring that stuff and to kind of undo the shame. So, and the second one's consent. So I do a lot of work with everyone on what consent actually is. And Betty Martin has some really great work on consent. She's actually a therapist in Seattle and how it's a lot more complex than, you know, we talk about it in schools and that just saying yes to something doesn't really mean you consented to it necessarily. There's so much that goes into consent. And so often people are saying yes to things because they feel like they have to, not because they actually want to. So really like breaking that down for people and starting to build more authentic consent. I mean, we have a huge like kink community here, which is awesome. Like Seattle Erotic Art Festival, Hump. It's also there's just so many more queer people here and trans people. Like I think all of us kind of create this atmosphere that all the straight people are walking around because they have to learn pronouns and they have to learn that like, you know, you can't ask, oh, you know, who's your husband? Like you should ask something more inclusive. Hump started out as an amateur porn festival that would like, you know, have queer videos. And now so many straight people go to it too. 
and get to explore, you know, their own kinks and stuff. And like non-kinksters, right? Like straight, monogamous non-kinksters. Like I shouldn't just lump every straight person into that. But yeah, and I think there's just been so much influence like pulling people in. And I think that has allowed people to be more flexible in how they're thinking about their relationships and sexuality and gender. Maybe it's because Seattle has this like radical underground culture that's kind of been present even without queerness for a really long time. Just this like rebellion, wanting to like rebel against the mainstream, wanting to be different, uniqueness, individualism. I don't know if I remember I got to talk to one of my old mentors at the crisis clinic who, gosh, I think she was like in her 70s at the time, but she told me a lot about Seattle roots, like Seattle gay roots, like how Seattle counseling started. And, you know, when all the bars here used to, like, that's why neighbors still has a back door because they had a back door so people could like leave and that Capitol Hill was called Swish Hill, you know, because all the swishies were up here, you know, like all the gays were up here. So I don't know. I think we've been here a long time and... I think maybe we've just been pushing, like subtly pushing this thing, the homosexual agenda, if you would call it, um, forward and like queering a lot of people's idea of sexuality and relationships. Outside of being a sex therapist, I also have written a really fun sex ed book called Clitoris Chronicles. And it covers all these topics that I, you know, mostly come up in sex ed, which is consent, communication, how to ask for things you want. And there's also some clit dance moves or things to try. And the main premise of the book is that there's a main character named Clitty and she wants to become an author and you know put clits everywhere on the map and she has the beginning of her story and the end of her story but what she just can't figure out is the climax so she's on a journey to find her climax and similarly to myself I had such a hard time you know finding my own way back to trusting my body and orgasm and all the stuff I wrote this book to be a really playful way for people to start looking at that stuff without it being scary right like they're reading the story and they don't even realize that they're talking about clits and orgasms and stuff I mean it's all metaphor they realize it but it's not scary and all of it's illustrated, so it's really fun and silly. And I just think that ultimately I want sex to be more playful and people to have a more playful experience in themselves. So that's why I wrote it and want people to know about it. We could say it's because it's illustrated and it's young and it's silly and playful. It could be, you know, middle school, high school. But a lot of us are learning about our sexuality up through our 80s and we didn't have any of these words and stuff. So I also hope older folks and like our generation can also use this book as a way to kind of help their younger selves get the information that they never got. Imagine if your mom had given you that book. Right. Or imagine me giving her that book and now she's talking to all of her friends about clits <laughs> and having these really fun conversations with them, you know, about they're all retired and in their 60s and having less sex now, but how could they get a toy? Could they masturbate? Could they do these different things that they would have never gotten permission for as teenagers or even adults. Fruitball interviews are edited for length and narrative clarity and are approved by each interviewee before being released.
Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com, where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Fruit Bowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, black people, indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions, a description of the collaborative interview process, and news about future production. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruit Bowl is produced independently without any corporate media infrastructure or full-time staff. Help support our efforts to collect, archive, and share personal stories about queer coming of age by making a small monthly donation through Fruit Bowl's Patreon membership. Patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive video outtakes from each episode that are not available to the general public. Or promote your business by sponsoring an episode of Fruit Bowl or dedicate an episode to a loved one. Episode sponsorships and dedications are 100% tax-deductible through Fruit Bowl's fiscal partnership with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl receives no direct funding from Northwest Film Forum, only the use of their nonprofit status to receive tax-deductible donations. Learn more at fruitbowlpodcast.com slash donate or write dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com for more information. Social media platforms often censor mentions or depictions of queer sexuality. Accounts are often suspended or banned outright without notice or due process. As a result, promoting Fruit Bowl is an uphill battle, so we rely on you to help spread the word. Tell your friends about Fruit Bowl, rate us on your podcast platform, or write a review on Apple Podcast. And, of course, you can also follow us, for now, on Twitter at Fruit Bowl Pod and Instagram and TikTok at Fruit Bowl Podcast. Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. I'm Rebecca M. Davis. This has been a production of Cubed Media, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.